Well, good morning, everyone. All right, good morning, Unionville, and good morning to those of you who are watching online as well. It is such a joy and an honor to be with you here today to be able to uh, deliver uh, the Word of God and the message, especially in such an important series um, that your church and our church is a part of and what we're going through here today. I have to admit, seeing those videos of camp, I feel like I'm in a time warp. Um, as Leonor mentioned, being a children's pastor for a little over 10 years, um, it has, I've, I've run my share of camps, and uh, the energy that that takes is off the charts. So Sophie and all of you, your teams, uh, you are making uh, an incredible investment um, in the lives of children. And sometimes when you have a perspective of looking back, you begin to see just exactly the influence that uh, those camps and all the energy that was worth it. So uh, I just want to encourage all of you here today. Just on a, um, a personal note as well, I would like to thank uh, the church, especially we've been at Unionville for just a, almost a year now. So thank you for welcoming myself, Sharon and Bethany and uh, our family. It has been so nice to be able to be uh, worshiping here today and worshiping in your presence and being a part of this community and your vision for touching the world through Christ one person at a time. So it's a joy to partner with you in that today. <clears throat> Today's message is what it is not. It's not a seminar. It's not a workshop. It's not a how-to grieve. I'm not here to tell you how to grieve or how you must grieve because grief is very individual. It's very personal. And loss and mourning is very personal. And I also realize as well that there are, very, there are cultural components to our grief. There are cultural observances to, our, to grief and to mourning that are also a very important part of helping us to walk through and walk with grief and loss as well. So today, I am aware I am aware that uh, even the discussion of the beatitude, blessed are they who mourn for they will be comforted. Um, perhaps it, it may be a, a difficult subject for you to enter into because of maybe there is someone in your life or someone in your heart or your mind who you have at the very center of your mind and of your heart today. And today may, may bring back um, those memories as well. All right, so I am aware of that. So especially at the end of the service as well. And uh, if you, there's a prayer team who's, who are here. If you, I would encourage you, if you wish to have someone pray for you as another measure of comfort, as another measure of God's displaying his presence in your life, then I would encourage you to come forward. Or maybe um, calling the church office and uh, getting in touch with the office here as well, and they can assist you in that regard too. All right? So... God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What is the heart of Jesus for us? During times in our lives, whenever heartache and brokenness can feel as if they are beyond repair. 
How does Jesus respond in these seasons of our lives? And I call them seasons. Certainly because in, in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 8, for there is a season for everything. There is a season, to, there is a time to weep and a time to dance. I love how the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, I love how he weaves all of those because they do describe the ebbs and flows of life. They describe the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the joys, the blessings, the sorrows of human existence. And so I love how he frames that for us. And earlier in our series on the Beatitudes, John Cook identified that the word blesses conveys the idea of congratulations. And watching the video of the kids jumping around and just having a grand old time, I thought to myself, that is a picture of excitement. That is a picture of joy. And I thought, can I have that kind of joy in the midst of pain, in the midst of losses? And I can speak from my own heart and from my own experience that yes, yes, you can. But we can certainly see how this creates a paradox. The idea of congratulations for those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Whew. How do we deal with that? <laughs> Where do we go with that? The world would look at that and say, well, that's just a contradiction. That's just absolutely impossible. But as we have been singing about in our worship time today, it's not impossible with God. So by reflecting further upon the beatitude of Jesus, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We will see how through the actions of Jesus toward the brokenhearted reveals the heart of God. So just like our kids have a main point in their power-up. Adults, so do we. And our main message here today, if you take anything away from this time spent in worship together through the Word, that the comfort of Jesus reveals the heart of God. The comfort of Jesus reveals the heart of God. Next slide, please. As Leonor mentioned, I've had the incredible honor of working in healthcare in a GTA area facility for a little over 18 years. And it has been an absolute joy and privilege to be able to be a part of a healthcare team and to contribute to someone's spiritual life, to contribute to their journey on their journey. In my capacity as a healthcare chaplain, I have the honor, as I mentioned, to witness, to be a witness to and a presence in seasons of grief and life losses. 
we would be here all day if I could share with you some of those encounters and some of those stories. I'm not able to, to go into very detail because for confidentiality reasons. And any examples I use today will bear that in mind. But a witness is not a bystander. Mm -mm. A witness is someone who is actively taking part in with their eyes, with their heart, with their body, with all of who they are. They bring to that situation at the bedside, in a waiting room, in the ER, in other places. Part of my work involves working with those who suffer with Alzheimer's disease or a, a dementia. And the average age of my population, <laughs> 97 years old. Average. Average age. And um, it's beautiful. It's absolutely a privilege to be able to work with those men and women. What am I a witness to in those situations? Just want to highlight a few things real quickly. I'm witness to individuals who maybe want to go home or changes within their physical person or cognitive, a cognitive decline, decline with memory. But I'm also envisioning how that, how that disease can affect someone's whole person. I'm also a witness to changes in our bodies due to illness or diagnosis or the changes that advancing years can bring. I'm also a witness to those aspects of needing at times of uh, needing to say goodbye. Goodbye to this. Right? Goodbye to this. I'm also a witness to those times of grief and mourning of family members and, and, and even ourselves seeing a loved one in a way in which you have never seen them before. That can bring about a deep grief because I've never, I've never seen or experienced my loved one in this way. Or even seeing ourselves, our physical body in ways in which we too are unfamiliar and wanting to feel whole or wanting to feel quote-unquote Normal, again. Just over two years ago, I was, um, uh, we just finished my daughter's graduation online, and I was having trouble with vision in my right eye at the time, and I had an appointment for, for the doctor to check it out. But I was just noticing some things. So I, once everything was finished, her, her online celebration was done, I sat in the chair, I sat in a chair, and then Sharon walked into the room, and I just looked up. All of a sudden, I said, Sharon, I can't see you. I can't see you out of my right eye. It was, it was dark. I thought, what happened? It, it just went dark. So the next day, we called, and fortunately, I was able to get an uh, emergency appointment, and I had, uh, had a detached macula uh, in my right eye. And I didn't know that at the time, um, how severe it was at the moment. I won't go into all those details again. I won't go into all those details, but thankfully I was able to get in in a very timely way. And they were to do some particular surgery that they needed to do. So basically my whole right eye is lasered together. My whole right eye. So I remember being um, 
and the procedure that I had required me to be on my side, on my right side, for 45 minutes with about maybe 15-minute break for two weeks. Over two weeks, I was on my right side. And any time I had to get up, I had to walk with my head like this. <laughs> so you get to see a different perspective. But I remember feeling, oh, when will I ever be normal again? Will I feel whole again? And I remember feeling those senses of helplessness. And it brought about a grief. But while, uh, while I was lying in bed, you have a lot of time to think. And I remember listening to worship songs and some of the ones that I, worship, that I listened to today were, were sung by our worship team here today. So call and thank you. And I remember the comfort. And every one of those worship songs, I kid you not, had images of light and darkness. Somewhere in the lyrics said light or darkness and light. And I remember thinking to myself, Lord, if, if I am going to live a life maybe where my, of, of, of darkness, then give me joy. Give me joy. Yesterday I had a follow-up appointment. And the doctors, he said, man. He said, the difference in your sight is night and day to what it was when I saw you two years ago. I've had other follow-up appointments so I went from having zero vision in my right eye to 2020. In some cases, 2015. So I just thank the Lord for that. So in my spirit, he said to me, he said, he said, this is a day to celebrate. This is good news. The doctor said that. This is good news. And I, in my spirit, I said, absolutely. And I just said, Lord, it's I said, Doc, it's because of prayer. It's because of my faith. Next slide, please. I'm a visual person. I'm a visual person. That's how I learn. So for those of you who are visual learners, I have a picture here. I do not know who this artist is, but a number of years ago, I was attracted to this photo. I was attracted to this picture. It was on the back of a, of a, a chaplaincy a brochure, a magazine that I had subscribed to. And it just caught my attention because it summarizes in a visual way, <laughs> the work that God does to those who are grieving, to those who are facing loss or in mourning, but it also, it also is a reminder of the role that we have as people of faith to be comforters of one another. So you can put yourself in both postures. I can put myself in both postures there where I'm needing help. I am broken. And also the presence of the loving hand of Christ reaching down. You notice there's no words there. So I can put myself in both situations. And this kind of reminds me of the road to Emmaus in, Matthew, in um, Luke 24. That is my life calling. Walking that road to Emmaus with individuals who are going through questions and deepening moments and being with them, and companioning them, with them. Next slide, please. This is probably not new information to you, but what is mourning in its truest sense of the word? 
What is mourning? Mourning is an acknowledgement that something fundamental in life has now changed. It's been altered. It's been changed. And I'm not going, and I can certainly, you know, you know better than I some of what that means for you personally and how maybe your life has been impacted and how life, your, your life has been changed. And certainly throughout the pandemic, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm not going to highlight that because you know, you know. But mourning is an expression of care. That's something important in my life has changed, but it matters to me. It matters to me. My tears can be tears of sadness, but also I can have tears of joy because something or someone is so important in my life that it matters to me. Mourning is the voice. When there are no words, mourning can come out. through. It's the voice of pain, the voice of disruption, the voice of a broken heart. But mourning is also those who mourn. Those who mourn, they care deeply. They care deeply about the situation or their circumstance. They care, they care deeply about what has happened. Those who mourn can feel the burden or the heaviness of loss. And I've heard this many, many times. I feel stuck. I feel stuck. Not knowing where to go. I feel numb. Powerless to change anything. Powerless to respond. That is a reflection of a deep, of a mourning that is happening, of a sadness. Mourning is also grief. Grief over, grief over sin or due to sin. Whether that is personal or whether that is corporate. And certainly the earlier beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. There is a link here. Because when I am poor in spirit, I can recognize that my need for God or my need for Christ and recognizing that I can't, I can't save myself. This is, Lord, forgive me. I need you in my life. So there is that sense of mourning as well. Mourning our human condition or grieving over our human condition, injustice, powerlessness. I won't go on. But you can see mourning runs deep. God blesses those who mourn. It is important for us to be able to look at what does mourning look like? What is the biblical use of the word mourning? How is it understood? It's important to look at this because we get to see how it is used throughout Scripture. I'm just going to highlight a few of these here. All right? This is not an exhaustive list. And... Uh, um, so these are from scholars. These are scholars' um, understanding of what the word mourn means. Those who mourn can manifest itself by beating one's breast. It's a lament, a lamentation. And obviously we have the book of lamentations. 
We have psalms, psalms of lament. All right? Those who mourn. It also can be translated, those who weep, those who sorrow, those who face affliction, those who cry. Not just cry, but those who cry loudly can be classified as wail. And in my own personal, um, in my own personal experience in healthcare, um, I have heard and been present too, along with other of my colleagues, moments where of that intense, intense grief that comes over someone. And it stays with me. Stays with me. But that is the cry. There are rituals and customs throughout Scripture. The wearing of sackcloth, um, shaving, um, taking a cup of consolation. There are numerous other rituals and customs, uh, especially throughout the Scriptures, in order to express, those, express our mourning. Those who face affliction, a bitter day, Amos verse eight, chapter 8, verse 10. Those who face affliction, it's, it's bitterness. I don't, it's, it's bitter taste in my mouth. I think of Christ being on that cross, taking that bitter, that bitter wine. It was bitter, symbolizing the affliction that he himself would endure. And also there are days of bitterness, observance. And um, the observance of Shiva for members, members of our Jewish uh, faith and Jewish communities. The observance of Shiva, which is, part of a year, which is only one aspect of a year-long process of mourning. Being in the house of, of the love, being in a loved one's house. And for about a week, family and friends come and they comfort. They come and, and you know, it's, it's a very, it's a time where they have a chance to receive comfort from friends or particularly from family. But in Matthew 4, verse 5, what is Jesus communicating to the early disciples about mourning in the kingdom of heaven? What is he trying to communicate in that one verse, all right? That one verse, blessed are those who mourn. Next slide. I think Jesus is telling his disciples or reminding his disciples that the kingdom of God has come into a world where the reality of pain and suffering exists. That's where the kingdom of God has broken into. Not to a perfect world. There's no need. But there is a need. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, has broken into a world where the reality of human suffering exists. Where mourning and laments, where injustice are active. They exist. You could feel them. The kingdom of God has come into a world of poverty and sin. An area of disruption of life. So Jesus does not promise to his disciples in that Sermon on the Mount an unrealistic, trouble-free existence. In the present imperfect world, in the present imperfect world, this would not be possible. So Jesus does not promise 
an unrealistic, trouble-free existence, especially early on in my own Christian faith. I grew up in the church. I grew up in Sunday school. I grew, I did, I grew up in it. I grew up in the church. And I'm grateful for that. But there were times where I would think to myself that because of my faith, I'm somehow immune to suffering. I'm somehow immune to it. Well, I had quickly learned that that was not the case. And that can create a tension. It created a tension in me. God, I, said, I thought you said no harm would come near my tent. And yet, why am, I, why, am I fa- why am I facing? Why am I experiencing this? Why is this coming to my life? There's an expression of lament. Why? Why, Lord? Why at all? Why now? What is the reason? I don't understand. Next slide, please. D.A. Carson writes this. The godly remnant in Jesus' day weeps because of the humiliation of Israel, but they understand that it comes from personal and corporate sins. Psalm 119, verse 136 testified, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. So Jesus, in speaking to those early disciples in that sermon on the hill, that sermon on the mount, was probably not telling them something that they themselves did not know because they would have heard it in synagogue. They would have heard it through the priests. They would have experienced it. They would have seen it with their own eyes. They knew their history. Slavery in Egypt. God's deliverance. The destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, the Babylonian conquest, and the exile. They knew what it meant to be in need. Next slide. But Jesus says in John's gospel, later in his ministry, He says to his disciples after he says, there's going to be a comforter who's going to come. I'm not going to leave you in this. I'm not going to leave you in this state. There is going to be an advocate who will come. The Holy Spirit. I have told you this so that you may have peace in me. Why? Because here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. There's a shift. There's a shift that says, I'm not talking about the world here now, because you know that. You've seen it. You, disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, yeah, you're going to have trials. You're going to have sorrows. He personalizes it. But take heart. (laughs) Take heart. Be comforted. I've overcome the world. So Jesus declares this in a more personal way. And then we are now shifting. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, what is our biblical understanding of the word comfort? Comfort means to take heart. 
It means to take courage, to trust, to be encouraged. I'd love, I love this particular understanding or interpretation of comforted. Whenever there are times in Scripture where the Lord says, or the angel says, or Christ says, fear not. Fear not is a way of expressing, you know what? Fear not because comfort is going to come. (laughs) Comfort is going to come. You will overcome this fear because, fear not because you can have confidence in God's hope, confidence in God's promises. So when, if you look closely at the word fear not in various texts, you will see fear not because. So it is another way of expressing comfort. The assurance of confidence and taking heart and be of good cheer. But my last point on this understanding of comforted is as I was preparing for this morning, the use of the tense of the word comforter or comforted, not in every case, but in some cases in Scripture, the word is used with a certain tense that it is a reference, it's, it's in such a way that it's a reference to this comfort would have no duration. The comfort is not going to come to an end. My action in comfort is not going to stop. That excites me. That gives me joy. So that word is used without any reference to how long that comfort is going to last. There's a sense of permanence to it. How does the comfort of Jesus reveal the heart of God? Jesus Christ would turn mourning upside down. (laughs) Being consistent with his ministry. He would turn our mourning into songs of praise. And we have been singing about that today. Christ and the kingdom of God does not leave us in that condition of mourning. Brokenness and suffering will not have the final word. Jesus will transform our despair and transforms the lives of our human hearts. To comfort is a part of God's divine nature. God himself cannot help but comfort. Cannot help be a comforter. It's part of God's nature and character. And Christ came to embody the incarnation. He came to embody that comfort of the Father. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. The disciples have, of Jesus have an assurance and a hope that this promise of comfort will come directly from God himself through the incarnate Son, the Word, Jesus Christ. A promise given 
through the promised gift of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. The Comforter, in John 14 and again in John 16, the Comforter would be an advocate. Convict people of their sins. Convict of personal sin. Would be a spirit of truth. He would be the blessing of God's peace. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would be a teacher and remind the disciples and remind us and remind me of the teachings of Christ, of the teachings of the Word. I do remember a time in my life where I felt in my spiritual walk I was not moving forward. I felt stuck. I thought, oh, how come I'm, how come I'm not, I don't seem to be moving forward? Well, the Lord had revealed to me that I was, I, I was harboring some unforgiveness. I was harboring some unforgiveness toward a colleague. And I thought I had dealt with it. I thought I had dealt it and thought, okay, I'll be all right. Yep, I'm, everything's good. We're fine. I'm fine. Yep, feeling fine. I'm good with that. Yep. God said to me, it's not until you deal with that. But I, I wasn't in the wrong, Lord. I wasn't in the wrong. It, it, this person did this to me. It doesn't matter. God said to me, in order for you to move forward, you need to go to that individual and seek their forgiveness. Then the Lord, then I thought to myself, I started wrestling with God. And I said, well, I better hear this in return. I better hear, well, I was so, I'm sorry. Yep, I was wrong. <laughs> you were right. And then the Lord said to me, Wes, You need to go, even though you do not get the answer you're looking for. <laughs> go. Later on, I would see this individual at a gathering. And I'm, I love relationships. I'm a relational person. And I, I really don't, I, I really want my relationships to be, to be, to be pure in so many ways. I want to be able to walk into a room and not have to go, oh, okay. I hear chuckling. I think that resonates. So I, first thing I did is I went up to this individual and I just said, you know what, I've been harboring some unforgiveness. And I said, I am sorry for that. And actually, I said to this individual, I said, actually, Regarding our disagreement, <laughs> you were right. And I didn't hear, I didn't hear. Well, yeah, I, I'm sorry for that too. I didn't hear that. But I was able to release that. I don't say this to glorify my own righteousness. I say this as an example of the work of the Holy Spirit. It says, this is what I want you to do. Even though you don't want the answer you're looking for, go. And that was such a releasing point in my life that whenever I see, whenever I see my brother again, 
I walk into that room, I can shake hands, I can have a joy in my heart because the comforter has said, I'm going to turn your unforgiveness, your mourning into joy. Next slide, please. Okay. Jesus comforts by coming alongside people, by coming near and entering into those moments, those raw life moments. Next slide, please. How does Jesus live out and demonstrate God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted? How does he actually go about doing that in Matthew's gospel? What I'd like to do is I'd like to just look at just a couple examples real quick. Right? Because I believe they are so important and they, they do represent, how, they do demonstrate how Christ lived these out. So Jesus comforts by coming alongside, coming near. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 4. And these examples may be familiar examples to us. But I love looking at Scripture in, you know, I love looking at Scripture in a different way when you've had life experiences. <laughs> Matthew 14, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Verse 14 says, when he went ashore, Jesus saw the huge crowd and he stepped back from the boat and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So Jesus, as we know, is, is feeding a gathering. There's a large, large crowd of people. And it was time to eat. And then Jesus says to his disciples, I'd like you to go and look for food. See what you can find. And the response of the disciples was, there's nothing here. It's barren. <laughs> Where you're in a desert. There is nothing here of any value. All the disciples could focus on was the condition of their surroundings. <laughs> My situation is it's like a desert. It's dry. There's no life here. There's no food. It's easier for Jesus. You know what? Jesus, just send the disciples or just send the people away. Just send them back. They can go to the local market. They can go to the village. And they can provide food for themselves. Don't, yeah, they can do it themselves. They can do it. <laughs> Somehow the disciples thought they knew better when the, what the crowd needed. Especially in a time of need. And what does Jesus' response in verse 16? Jesus says to his disciples, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They need not go away. Remember who's speaking here. Christ. They need not go away because I'm not leaving them. I am not leaving them. I am staying with these folks who are hungry. I'm staying with them. The needy. The poor. You give them something to eat. So again, Jesus gives the disciples a commission. He commissions them. So Jesus' commitment is on full display. Right there. In Matthew 15, verse 32, <laughs> I like to think of this one. I like to think of this uh, interaction of Jesus. He's feeding the 4,000. All right, it's another interaction in Matthew. I see Jesus as a healthcare worker here. I really do. Then Jesus called his disciples and told them, 
I feel sorry, compassion, for these people. They have been here, they've been here with me for three days, and they have had nothing, there's, there's nothing to eat. They've had nothing to eat for three days. I don't want them, I don't want to send them away hungry, or they will faint along the way. Remember, people were bringing Christ. People were bringing to Christ the needy, the poor, the lame, those who were in need of healing. They had been there for three days. And the text later goes on to say that among them were women and children. Now, for parents among us, if your child was without food or the necessities of basic food for a period of time, as a parent, I can only imagine how heartbreaking that would be to not to be able to provide for the needs of my child, for the needs of my kids. But Jesus says to them, he told them, he went to his disciples and he told them his feelings. <laughs> the first account, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples he feels compassion. He works out of compassion. Here he said to them, disciples, I feel sorry, or I, I feel compassion for these folks. But again, the disciples could only focus on the lifeless, barren circumstances. They asked questions. They said, well, all we have is five loaves of bread, two fish. That's all there is. There's nothing here. They started asking questions to Jesus. There was nothing of any redeemable value could ever come from the situation here in the desert. Jesus, we've been here before. And now we're here again. Nothing of any value could come from this. Let alone to try and comfort the needs of many people. They might riot. What happens if they, what happens if they riot? So Jesus comforts us in a place where it's least expected. The desert. Yet Jesus, he sees further into what is on, on the surface in what is apparently unredeemable life moment. He sees into the faithlessness of the disciples, into their questions, their doubts. He sees the questions of their heart. Looks at the other side in order to reveal his life-giving heart. The life-giving heart of God. Jesus sees under our pain he sees under our circumstances more than what we could ever do. My last example is actually in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 7, verse 13. And for Luke to record the nature of this account, I've, I have discovered, was very unique for Luke because he was not necessarily about emotion. Luke's gospel is different than Matthew's gospel. Luke's gospel is more matter-of-fact. But in Luke's gospel, we hear Jesus' raising of the widow's son. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. So Jesus would arrive at a small center near his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus and the disciples encounter a funeral procession near the gate. So someone is experiencing a loss. The deceased was one, the deceased was the only son of the mother. 
Moved with compassion, Jesus takes the initiative and reaches out in a deeply human way and says to this woman, this widow, don't cry. The woman does not appear to ask for any help. Jesus is the one who took the initiative. Author Joseph Fitzmaier notes that the literal, transla- the literal translation of don't cry would be don't go on crying. I don't know if I would say that to someone whom I was beside or who I was um, caring for, who is in deep, who is, who is experiencing deep grief. Oh, don't cry. Don't cry. I would only say that because I'm uncomfortable with the, I'm uncomfortable with the emotion that's coming my way. It's out of my own uncomfortableness. But Jesus, these words imply in some way that Jesus was about to address her pain of grieving of this mother's heart of her young son. Jesus was about to do something greater than what was to be seen. Scholars identify then in the patriarchal society of Jesus' day, the woman who Luke mentions is a widow, without a male figure in her life, would probably live the remainder of her life in severe poverty, unable in that society to earn a living. The outlook of life for this woman is grim. The circumstances Luke describes is of a woman who is crushed, of a woman who, whose life is significantly disrupted, economically, personally, socially, relationally. I don't see a tomorrow. I don't see a tomorrow. And have you ever asked that? I've asked that. I don't see a tomorrow. Jesus is moved with compassion so much that he risks being accused of blasphemy by touching the coffin, whereby defiling Torah burial observances, he would now be considered unclean. This action was significant because the procession stopped in its tracks. Jesus reaches out and touches an area of the coffin, and the procession stops. Jesus had the attention of the people and the attention of this young, of this widow. Jesus' response toward this woman is to comfort her. That's it. Full stop. His response was to comfort. And we sense the heart of the kingdom of Jesus towards her grieving mother. This echoes Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I'll say it again. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Sounds like the woman that Jesus had just met. But with one word, And we sung this word 
in our worship, one of our worship selections here today. Rise. Words are important. I learn that every day. How are you? I'm good. What's good? What is good? How is your life good today? Where are you seeing goodness in your life? That one word, rise. Jesus would do what would seem impossible for a mother in a season of deep heartache. And then we find at the very end, verse 15, close to the end of that that narrative, and Jesus gave him to his mother. That boy was raised. That young life was raised again. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Luke tells us that this was for the only reason that this had been done. There's no other context. The only reason was to reunite a grieving mother with her son. It's that life-giving action of God, of the kingdom, for all who are suffering. By his very word and compassionate heart, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would reveal the heartbeat of the kingdom of God. And as we know, that that would certainly be an example and a foretaste of what Christ would do. Not for one person, not for two people, but for the entire human race. He would rise. That's why Easter is so important. Rise. Go. What is the heartbeat of Jesus for us during times in our lives whenever heartache and brokenness can feel beyond repair? May I say to us this morning to trust, to trust in the comforter, to join with our spirit through the spirit of the living Christ whom dwells in our hearts to walk alongside of us. Trust. Because in the kingdom of heaven, the same comfort Jesus reveals is the heart of God. Next slide. I showed this picture at the very beginning. I'm showing it now. Maybe you're looking at this picture in a different way than when you first arrived, when you first saw it. Maybe you're seeing the compassion, the heart of God in your life in a different way. Or maybe there's a time where I need the comforter. So Christ, reach down Reach out and touch me, my heart. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And as they come, 
I find music, music is such an integral part of, of, of journeying um, in times of loss or in times of need. I'm often comforted by music. It's an important part in our family as well, too. And um, I work with music therapists. And to be able to see the way music resonates with someone of cognitive impairment is absolutely astonishing. It is remarkable. The power of music. We're going to conclude um, this service here today with the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. I enjoy this hymn because of the circumstances surrounding it. Horatio Spafford, a prosperous man, in 1870, began a series that would turn his life upside down. A devout man of faith. Horatio's four girls were going off to, uh, to England to go with D.L. Moody, and his wife Anna was going to accompany them. And Horatio was, um, he got caught in a business dealing. He had to be delayed, so he said to his wife and four girls, said, you go ahead. I'll meet you there in England. I'll get there later on. In November of 1873, Anna and the girls, they boarded that ship. And four days into their transatlantic journey, Horatio received the devastating news that no parent or no one ever wants to receive. We learn in this story and his life experience that the ship had collided with another iron-hulled vessel, on the high seas. Anna and the four girls' vessel sunk in mere minutes. It had taken the lives of 226 passengers. And at the time, it was the largest naval disaster in recorded history at the time. But several days later, survivors reached a port city in Wales. And then Horatio received a brief text. <laughs> Telegram, I'll call the text. Saved alone, what shall I do? From his wife. So Horatio boarded that ship, and as soon as he could, he wanted to join his grieving wife. Maybe that's your heart. When someone, when you're experiencing loss or mourning, you want to be with that individual. You want to be near them. You're drawn to each other for comfort. En route to England, the captain had the wisdom to call Horatio up to the bridge. He changed Horatio's perspective. Horatio was down below, but the captain called him up. Arise. Arise. Called him up. Where does my, when I look, where does my help, when I look unto the hills, where does my help come from? Change my vision. So he was about to pass the very area believed to be the site where the ship had sunk. And according to much later family correspondence, Horatio would pen these words. It is well with my soul on that journey. Often out of grief and loss, the only way I can respond can be, through, can be through that artistic expression of writing, journaling, 
That's how I need to express myself. And went on to say, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that was taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The circumstances behind this hymn of faith are poignant. They are poignant because they are reminders, UAC, that as Christian people, we look at life through the cross of Jesus Christ. When we mourn as people of the kingdom of God, we do so not without hope because it is the death and resurrection of the Lamb of God, the only one who could bear the sins of a suffering, hurting world. Past, present, and future. Because that is the heart of God. Amen.